of Revelation. Good morning. You're back. Uh, last week I spoke about this idea that the purpose of Revelation is to offer clarity and encouragement, which is something that it has often done the opposite of. It hasn't offered clarity and encouragement because people have tried to treat it like a map rather than a portrait. There's, there's a temptation with Revelation to try and put everything together like cogs in a gearbox or to try and pin everything down. We've um, treated it a little bit actually like a grade American action movie where there's good guys and bad guys and not a lot of nuance. And I really see the appeal in that. There's, there's a real appeal in trying to make something simple and straightforward and contained. We like to do that with Revelation, to, to like to think that we can control it and get around it. It offers this tempting illusion of certainty that, oh yeah, it's okay, the future is clear and it's just this, this, this and this. Because greyness is confronting. We don't like uncertainty when it comes to the future. We don't like the idea that we have to think or discern or that maybe there are multiple things that can be true at the same time. But if we take Revelation down that strict black and white path, what we end up doing is taking this rich, beautiful, encouraging book and just flattening it down to one dimension. We oversimplify, and in that process, we dishonor God and we dehumanize people. So, truly understanding Revelation takes wisdom. Uh, it takes insight. It means being open to multiple perspectives because Revelation paints a picture of God's ultimate purpose. Everything that God's trying to do in this world is uh, painted out for us as a portrait in Revelation. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. This is the purpose, to bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Revelation describes for us this purpose achieving its fulfillment, the setting of right of all things under Christ. It's the culmination of God's love, God's patience, and God's grace. A God who breaks down every barrier, who opens the way for people to come back into unity with him, who doesn't force people through that door, but patiently invites. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, maintaining love to thousands, yet not leaving the guilty unpunished nation of this character of God, God who patiently, faithfully seeks and invites creation back into relationship with him through Jesus Christ. But he invites. He doesn't force. He makes space for those who choose to reject that invitation. Sometimes lovely people, uh, maybe people that you know, people that you're friends with or family. God is incredibly patient, but he will not wait forever. There is a day when he will set everything right. And that's kind of the foundation for understanding Revelation. If we're going to get to the heart of the message, that's the starting point. So uh, this morning, as we finish our series on Revelation that we began last week, uh, not going to tie everything up neatly for you. Um, I'm talking about things that are yet to happen. I'm talking about the all-encompassing, awesome purpose of God. Uh, I'm, trying to I'm trying to bring the reconciliation of heaven and earth and boil it down into about 20 minutes and present it to you and communicate it well. So there are things that I am going to miss. Even Jesus himself when he was teaching, said, there are some things about the future that only the Father knows and I don't know. So 
there are things that I will get wrong this morning. But my hope is that I'll get the outline clear. The big picture, the main message will be clear, even if some of the implementation details are a bit off. That sound good? All right, I'm going to hopefully leave room for questions. We'll see how we go for time and whether I like your questions. But um, if as I'm going along, there's anything that kind of comes to mind, anything basically about the whole book of Revelation, nothing's off limits, feel free to uh, make a note of that and I'll leave room at the end. All right, so the purpose of Revelation is to describe the... Um, bringing together of the whole of creation in unity in Christ. That's the foundation. I want to be super clear about what that actually means because there's been some confusion. It means that at the end of history, Jesus Christ will return and reconcile heaven and earth, that heaven and earth were not meant to be separate, that they were actually designed to overlap. And when Jesus returns, he will bring that overlap to fulfillment, that his spiritual kingdom and the kingdom of this earth will be united. His glory, his presence, will fill the earth as the water fills the seas. So our hope as Christians isn't that one day we will die and escape this world and go to heaven. Our hope is that at the return of Jesus heaven and earth will be reunited and we will physically live with him forever. The Christian hope is resurrection. It's such an important point because somewhere in the Middle Ages, uh, we kind of lost that perspective. We, we got weary. We, we were impatient. We got weary of waiting for Jesus to return. And so instead of keeping our eyes focused on his return, on resurrection and of this reconciliation of the new creation, what we did is we lowered our eyes to focus on what happens after you die. And we tended to focus more on going to heaven and this spiritual place, going off to be with Jesus where he is now, rather than remembering that that isn't the end game. The end game is the reconciliation of heaven and earth. So just to restate, because it's really important to get this right, if you don't get this right, Everything else about Revelation seems dumb. Our hope is that after we physically die, there'll be a time when we are dead, (laughs) held in the grace of God, that then after that, Jesus will return and he will physically raise us back to life in physical bodies. That at that time, he will destroy all evil And we will live with him in a renewed earth where heaven and earth overlap as they were meant to be. It's kind of going back to Eden, the state that was right at the beginning of Genesis, but this renewed Eden where it's not just a garden and a couple of people, it's a city and people from every language and nation and tribe and tongue living together in unity and worshipping God that he will be our God and we will be his people and we will live in his presence forever. That's the hope. That's the goal of history. This is what Jesus clearly taught. One of the things that I find fascinating about the book of Revelation is that so many people who take the book of Revelation come up with their theory on it without ever once looking at what Jesus taught about the future hope without looking at his teaching about his kingdom and how it all works. These are some of the things that Jesus clearly taught. He told us that he had come to seek and to save. He told us that um, when he arrived in, as a little baby in a manger, his mission was to come and save and reconcile. He didn't come to judge, but he came to redeem. But he was also very clear that he would return as judge, as king of kings and lord of lords, and he would set the world right, that he was the one that the Father had appointed as judge. Uh, He then empowered his disciples. He gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit and of the kingdom. He said, uh, you will be my witnesses. 
I'm sending you out to make disciples, to live out this kingdom, you can actually start this kingdom that's coming, this reconciliation that's coming. It's actually beginning in you, spirit, and in the mission I am sending you out to do. He promised us that the gates of hell won't stand against us in that mission, that as we go out and bring his kingdom to bear, that nothing will stand in our way. He said that he had bound Satan. Um, Jesus said, when, the, when he sent out the 72, I'm not sure if you remember this passage. I don't have all these passages up on here. It's a bit like Revelation. If I tried to put all the passages, it would just be overwhelming. When Jesus sent out the 72, when they gathered back together, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That as you went out and as you brought this good news of the kingdom, this new stage had happened where the doors were open for people to come into the kingdom of God and Satan had fallen. The war had been won. In Jesus, the war had been won. There's, a, there's this great analogy uh, World War II, D-Day, on D-Day, actually probably about 24 hours after D-Day, once I secured a few landing points and bridges and things, the war was won. That was the decisive battle that secured victory. But the war went on for another nine months after D-Day. Uh, as the troops went through France and um, enacted that victory, uh, someone said that Living as a Christian now is a bit like living between that time, between D-Day and V-Day. Oh, V-E-Day. V- yes, anyway. Um, Jesus also taught us. So he said, you have victory, you have my power. Satan has been bound, you will be my witnesses. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. But he also said... Evil will resist you at every turn. He said, in this world you will have trouble. He said that the response of many to the presence of the kingdom, to the presence of you as my witnesses, will be anger and persecution and violence. He said, just as they treated me, they will treat you. He said, don't be surprised at this. In fact, rejoice, because that's the way they treated the prophets as well. He said, follow my example of love. Don't give up. Be my witnesses. Love one another. Love even your enemies. And in doing this, you will overcome. He also taught us that there'd be a delay. Um, there's a uh, discourse, it's called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about um, some of these themes around his return. And he said that there'd be wars and famines and rumors of wars. And he says, don't get discouraged by these things. They're just like the beginning pains of childbirth. He said that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's what kind of started that whole discussion. These disciples are saying, look at these temples, they're amazing. Not one stone would be left on another. Do you know what happens if you go to Jerusalem to look at the temple now? It's not there. Yeah, there's not one stone of the original temple that Jesus was working through that's left. All that's left is a retaining wall. It's called the Wailing Wall. That's still there. It was a retaining wall built right on the edge. That's the only thing that's left from Jesus' day. Um, Jesus also told us, don't be afraid. Just get on with the job of being my witnesses, loving one another, making disciples. So Revelation is painting a picture for us of how these truths come to pass. How Jesus is king and he has defeated evil. How we as his people live in that victory, but also live under great persecution. How Jesus will ultimately return and um, the kingdom will come in all of its fullness. So putting Revelation alongside the teaching of Jesus is a really helpful grid to get our head around what Revelation is saying. It's like the teaching of Jesus is the... um, That's the structure. And if you get that right, then you can put Revelation alongside it and go, oh, yeah, I see where this part fits. 
remember the letters at the beginning of Revelation as well. So often when people come to Revelation, they chuck the letters at the start out. It's like, oh, they're talking about persecution and all this kind of stuff. They've got nothing to do with the main game, which is about the future. No, the, the letters are talking about all of this stuff that Jesus has just been teaching about. They're this mix of encouragement and compassion. This mix of hang in there, you have my authority, be strong, stand in that, and also you'll suffer persecution and don't be discouraged and it's not going to go on forever. So, so those threads, those dual threads of persecution and victory run right through Revelation. The beast will fight and deceive, but Christ and his kingdom will overcome. The very things, in fact, that evil thinks are its victory will turn out to be its defeat. Just as in the cross of Jesus, evil thought it had won its victory, had defeated the king, and the king used that to reconcile all people. Revelation is written to people like us who live in this overlap of the times between uh, the coming of Jesus and the final vindication of the king kingdom, what we talk about as the now and the not yet. They're kind of two sides of the coin. It's this heavenly perspective and this historical perspective, this earthly perspective, victory and persecution. Uh, Revelation kind of switches between those as it goes through. Sometimes it will be showing things from a historical point of view, And sometimes it will pull back the curtain and show it from a kingdom point of view. So, don't go off chasing theories on who the beast is and things like that. Don't be anxious. God is at work. Our job is to be faithful. That's the ultimate message of Revelation. Whatever happens, God is at work. We can be faithful. If we hang on to him, we will be vindicated at the end of history. And um, actually, the question that the early church... How are we doing, by the way? Hanging in there? That's good. Remember that there's question times. The question of the early church... Uh, actually, have a chat to the person around you just for one minute. What do you think the main question that ch- the church that this book was written to, early church, 90 AD, that John is writing to, what do you reckon the f- number one question they had was? Have a chat to the person next to you. I'm not going to get you to feedback. All right. I'm not giving you long. Uh, you may have got on this. Their main question was ours often ours is about the process and when this thing's going to happen and when their question was just this gut heartfelt question how long how long oh lord that's often been the prayer of the church how long Jesus it's actually in the book of revelation you see the martyrs those who were executed because of their faith in Jesus saying how long oh lord until you restore everything to how it should be. Um, The church that this book was written to, they were undergoing sustained persecution uh, from the Roman Empire. Domitian, who was the emperor at the time, he modelled himself on Nero. In fact, he claimed to be a reincarnation of Nero. So as you read Revelation, you'll hear about the beast. I forget if it's the beast. I think it's the beast who was killed and then came back to life again, almost certainly talking about Domitian. Um, He was executing Christians in increasingly horrific ways. Um, He was an autocrat. He was a dictator of the worst order um, who ordered the Roman Empire to worship him as God. There was a a certificate that people had to get um, that proved that they had worshipped the emperor. And without that certificate, you 
were in big strife. You could get chucked into prison. You weren't allowed to own land. You weren't allowed to trade. You needed to have that certificate. The mark of the beast in Revelation is almost certainly talking about that certificate. Um, The number of the beast, 666, is uh, a veiled reference to Nero Caesar. Um, The message of that whole section around the mark of the beast and not worshipping the beast is this. Don't worship the emperor or anything else that claims to have a higher authority than God. Uh, Even if it means suffering death, because many people who refused to worship the emperor were put to death, particularly around Asia Minor, where these churches were. So um, if you've ever worried about the mark of the beast, what it means, whether you should... uh, whether there's a theory that it's about credit cards or microchips or ID numbers or 5G or whatever, whatever the latest thing is that you're like, oh, I'm not sure if we should get that. It's not something you can accidentally do, okay? It's, it's not about numbers and about technology. It's actually about worshipping a human leader in the place of God. The message is don't do that. Which is good advice. It's not something we're um, tempted to do here in Australia. We tend to pull down our human leaders rather than worship them. Um, Dan Andrews is a broken man. Uh, <laughs> he's not someone that people are necessarily gathering around to put in the place of God. But I will say that there are many people today who are facing this choice. Do we honour the government above God? Uh, Many people, particularly in China, feel for them, are having to make that choice of do we stay faithful to the Lord Jesus or do we bend the knee to the commands of our government? And Revelation tells us, stand firm, patiently endure, honour Jesus and he will honour you. It's a really difficult choice. I'm glad I don't have to face it. So the question from the church facing all of this was how long, O Lord? How long until you return and establish your kingdom finally? Um, We often forget how relevant that question is to the churches as well because the churches this book is written to had witnessed a lot. They had seen earthquake and plague and famine and eclipses. All of those had happened in quick succession after the resurrection of Jesus. In AD 67, there was a Jewish revolt where someone claimed to be the Messiah and said, if you follow me, I will lead this nation to victory. He took up arms, kicked the Romans out, and they established a Jewish nation. Three years later, uh, the general Titus came in and laid siege to Jerusalem. It was utterly destroyed and burned. That's when the temple was torn down. Jewish historian Josephus says that 1.1 million people died in that siege because it happened uh, a couple of days before Passover. So a whole bunch of people had come into the city and were trapped and it was horrific. There wasn't enough food and uh, it did not go well. When Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, talked about when you see Jerusalem surrounded and the abomination that causes desolation, don't go into the city. Grab your cloak. Don't even grab your cloak, actually. Flee. That's what he was referring to, uh, that um, destruction of Jerusalem. The Christians at the time fled to a uh, nearby desert town. All the Christians in Jerusalem got out. Um, In AD 64... Rome was burned. You know the story of Nero playing the fiddle while Rome burned? That happened in AD 64. The great harlot of um, Revelation, it talks about the great harlot. She had been thrown down and burned. So the Christians had seen all of this. By AD 90, Jerusalem was destroyed, Rome had been burned down, earthquake, fire, famine and flood. Everything that Jesus had said in that Olivet Discourse, these things must happen had happened. So their question was, okay, how long, Lord? How long do we have to wait? 
Come, Lord Jesus, now and set the world right. So the big question for them is, why the delay? What are you waiting for, God? Why, why this time, this big time between the victory and its ultimate implementation? Still with us? <laughs> all right. I'm a bit worried about today. It's like, pff, here you go. It's all kit, no filler. Um, one thing you notice when you read through the book of Revelation, I, um, early, early this week, read through the whole book of Revelation in one sitting. It doesn't actually take that long. Um, but one thing you notice is that there's these three cycles of judgment. Every time it gets to the 11th hour where it's just about to be resolved and then something else starts up. And it gets to the very 11th hour, and something else starts up. It's really intentional. It's actually a literary device to tell us something really important. And the important thing is, be patient and wait. It's a bit like a, um, if you've ever seen a street performer gathering a crowd around, and they tell you, we're going to do this amazing trick. Everyone get excited. And then, like, for the next half an hour, they... (laughs) Uh, The question still remains, why is it taking so long? Why are we having to be patient and wait? This is what Peter wrote, and uh, it's really helpful. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where's this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By those waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. It's talking about Noah. By the same word, the present heavens are kept and reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Instead, as, uh, as some understand slowness, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He went on to say, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of lives, uh, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with wisdom that God gave him. The force restraining history is the patience of God. He doesn't want anyone to miss the chance to repent and turn back to him. Like the parable of the wheat and the weeds that Jesus told, he doesn't want to potentially miss out on someone not having the opportunity to put their trust in him. So the three cycles of judgment in Revelation, these pauses... Um, mirror the Great Commission, actually. One of the things you'll notice, just as Jesus sent us out as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the surrounding nations, and then to the very ends of the earth, so the judgment starts with Israel. It moves out to uh, the Roman Empire. And then it goes out to the final defeat of all evil. Um, it's not quite that neat, okay? The visions overlap and interpret each other a bit, but the message is clear. God is working towards this goal 
it's the same goal that he's wanting his gospel to work out. We need to be confident and patient and get on with the job of playing our part in the mission. His judgment is going to move out like this and he's called us to move out like this. Again, the call uh, that was in the letters in the start of Revelation is for patient endurance. So we've got this earthly perspective on the judgment, the three cycles moving out. But we've also got this heavenly perspective, um, this image of Jesus reigning for a thousand years. We read about it in Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Uh, Revelation 20, great chapter. Uh, there has been so much ink and argument and uh, thought spilled over this chapter. This is the only reference in Scripture to the thousand-year reign of Christ. This part here. And despite that fact, you won't believe how debated it is. What do we do with this thousand-year reign of Christ? For the early church, the question was, how long, Lord? What's holding you back? And the answer came, the patience and grace of God. For us, for the modern church, the question has been, where does the thousand-year reign of Christ fit in to the story? Where does it fit into our timeline? Uh, let, you give me my, let me give you my perspective, and it is a perspective, but I think it's a wise one. Um, like I said, I'm not going to get all the details right, but I hope to get the main overarching picture. I believe the thousand-year reign of Christ refers to the time of the church. I believe it's an image, uh, it's a heavenly perspective that counters the earthly perspective that um, has been going through as it's been talking about the persecution of the church and the judgment. What it's telling us is, yes, evil is reigning, evil is at work. There will be struggle. But ultimately... Jesus is Lord. Uh, his kingdom is advancing. Satan has been defeated and bound through the work of Jesus and we carry his authority. So while there's cause for grief and suffering in this world, behind that we have cause for great comfort and hope. These two sides of the coin. We're in the world but we're not of the world. In this world you will have struggle but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, the world will fight against you, but I have given you all power and all authority through my spirit. You are my witnesses and I am with you. What Revelation does is it kind of separates out those two perspectives so it can talk really clearly about each of them. But the reality is in this world, they're quite mixed. They overlap. Um, so we can see that we have hope, uh, that we can have confidence in the reign of Jesus. These, this chapter from Revelation is saying, ultimately Jesus is Lord and you can have confidence in that, no matter what else is going on, that we can take that to heart. All right, I'm going to put this together and finish up. So we're just going to go through the last bit of Revelation. We're not going to talk about Jerusalem and its measurements and what it looks like. The kids are talking about that in their program this morning. But let's, uh, let's bring it together. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, reference back to Ezekiel, um, just about kingdoms that are opposed to Jesus, to, to the Lord. And to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sands on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne 
and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the great scene of judgment from Revelation. This is where everything that it's been building up to comes together. Evil is gathered together to be destroyed. The way it paints the picture is evil gets this great army together and goes out to fight God and never gets to the battle. It just gathers up this army to be destroyed. Um, There are echoes here of the Syrian army in two kings. Uh, If you know the poem, The Fall of Sennacherib, uh, this, this time when a great Assyrian army came out against Jerusalem and in the morning God's people went out and there was no one there. <laughs> They'd been killed and fled. Evil ends in the book of Revelation with a whimper, not with a bang. And then God judges the earth. Every person is raised to life and judged according to what is written in the books and the book of life. Those who have put their trust in Jesus are welcomed into the new heaven and earth. Those who refuse to honour him face the second death. I'm not sure how you react to this image of judgment. Some people actually really like judgment because it's very clear. And uh, I uh, don't find it quite so easy. I take heart that the one who is judging is the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust him to judge rightly. I take heart that it's come after the great patient seeking of God where he has patiently and consistently and faithfully waited and called people to himself but there is something terrifyingly final about judgment here's the thing though to get to a renewed heaven and earth to get to a place where there is no evil judgment is a prerequisite evil has to be destroyed That's why there's this tension in Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, and destroy evil, but wait just a little bit longer. Be patient. Call people to yourself. I find it really helpful to actually to remember that judgment is an act of love. I know it's easy to say that, but what I mean is that it is God establishing a good creation and destroying evil and pain and suffering. That is a good thing. I find it helpful to remember that um, I don't rightly belong in the new creation. There are parts of me that deserve judgment and if you put it all together, I don't deserve to be (laughs) a part of the new creation. But God has made a way for me by faith in Jesus. I'm so thankful for that. That his purpose is to sum all things up in, in Christ. God's plan is for all people to come back to him and he has made a way even though it cost him greatly his hope is that they will be his people and he will be their god but in love he actually gives us the dignity to say no to that invitation he allows us to make that incredibly sad choice to say jesus i do not recognize you as lord i will not follow you He gives us the dignity to be able to make that choice. He wants all people to come to life, but he allows us to reject that invitation. I find it incredible that God would do that, but I find it um, awesome as well. Here are a couple of things I try and remember as well. That God doesn't make mistakes. He will judge well. It's not like we'll get to judgment and be like, oh, if only this had happened. <laughs> but no, we'll go, okay, yep, that is right. Yes, you have right. Like King Solomon, when he's sitting and doing his judgment that we read about in Kings and the two women who bring a baby and all, all of that 
God will make right judgments. There won't be any mistakes. There won't be if-onlys or grief over, oh, why did that happen? No, it would be, yeah, that is right. Um, At the judgment, all people will recognise the goodness and wisdom of God, even those who reject him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is worthy to rule and judge. God will do what is right. Uh, In a way that's beyond my comprehension and that's worthy of my worship. I trust Jesus to judge truly and rightly and awesomely. Uh, Second thing that's important to recognise, though, is that we do have a real choice. There is a choice here that God longs to sum everything up under Jesus Christ in unity, but he gives us the freedom to reject that. There is a real choice. Um, lots uh, Lots of debate about whether all people will come to faith in God because God is just so awesome and why wouldn't you come to faith in him? I don't think scripture leaves room for that. I would love that to be true. But scripture actually says, no, humans are given the power and authority to choose their destiny. It's an awesome power that God has given us. I wouldn't have given that to human beings. But that's what makes him God. He created us in his image. Third, I believe that God doesn't delight in suffering. Um, The purpose of judgment is to make right. So um, you'll hear me talking about the second death. I don't talk that much about hell. I think heaven and hell are concepts that are for the overlap of the time. But the ultimate aim of uh, Jesus, the ultimate aim of God, is simply to establish a new perfect creation where there is no evil. It is to destroy evil. So that end point isn't to have this eternal heaven and an eternal hell going alongside it. There's not a duality. The purpose, that kind of comes from Greek philosophy, actually, that, that duality that says that everything goes on eternally, so it either has to be in one place or the other. God's purpose is to completely remove evil from creation and destroy it completely. I believe that's the purpose of judgment. When it talks about the second death, it's mainly talking about the complete destruction of evil so that it ends. So you'll see... um, I'll read it now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared and as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now amongst people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur This is the second death. It's an incredible invitation. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. I'm going to pray in just a minute. I said I'd leave room for questions. I'm conscious of the kids, so... Our service may get um, derailed a little bit, but I think it's probably good that we open up for questions. So I didn't know if there were any burning questions that people had in response to all of this. I know I've shared a lot of my perspective, but I hope that I've also shared the word of God faithfully and truly.
Yo. Yes. Narrative. <laughs> yeah. And I think, like, I've experienced where people find that really hard because it's, well, if you just gave them clear information, I'd be able to make up my mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And instead, it's like, I can't even tell you what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that a comment or a question? I don't know. <laughs> so what, what advice would you give me in that situation? Um, so to probably talk about the stuff that we've been talking about, that it's talking about the future, that a genre is to be dramatic and pictorial rather than specific and narrative, that it's very different to all the other books of the New Testament. Similar to the Old Testament, so it's drawing on that tradition of prophecy and... Um, uh, uh, it's called apocalyptic genre. Um, so I'd have that conversation about genre and acknowledge the weirdness and say it's not trying to be a map, it's not trying to be what the Gospels are because it's talking about the future. And it's, but here are the main points. I, I don't know if that's helpful. Maybe. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, that was an easy one. That was like just asking for advice. I don't know if there's anyone that's like, but what about this or this part or you said, and I don't think. So it's a good opportunity. I'm like standing here. You just got to pitch it and I got to swing. Well, could I ask, Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think uh, it's not acute persecution that we're facing at the moment. It's not as pointed um, or as physical. Uh, I do think we're probably moving into a season where we need to lean into persecution a little bit. And what I mean by that is just acknowledge that... Um, this world is not our home, that we're not called to live according to the values, that we're called to be faithful to Jesus. Not be jerks about it as well. Uh, sometimes people go out looking for a fight. It's like if I'm a real Christian, I'm going to face persecution, so I'm going to be obnoxious to everyone and that proves I'm a good Christian. It's like, no. As far as it depends on you, try and live at peace with everyone. But if there is a choice choose to remain faithful to Jesus. So I think our conversation and the way that the world is going, um, particularly in Australia, we're getting to the point where around certain topics, there is no room for having a different opinion. Um, so I am all for um, equality, understanding of um, uh, liberty, I don't think liberty... When you say my human liberty and my human rights are more important than anything else, that actually gets off track, I think. Um, liberty is meant to be the servant of human flourishing. And so I'm a little bit wary of where we're going as a nation, where we say, you know, you need to acknowledge all of my rights. Um, really difficult to say this in a way that is helpful, so uh, excuse my tripping over this, but I think what we need to understand is that we are called not to be completely free, 
We're called to live in the freedom that comes from Jesus Christ, which is a freedom to serve, which is a freedom to love one another. And we're called to do that, to not say that the most important thing is that we get to do whatever we want. No, the most important thing is that we live in such a way that is gracious and loving and we work towards that. And I think that diverges us a little bit from the direction in which we're going politically and culturally. Um, I do think about America because they're a bit more extreme in this where it's like, well, my rights are more important than everything. It's like, no. There, there's this call to love and be a community. And, and so we need to walk that line and work out how to do that. That there are some things that are maybe um, we have the freedom to do, but that God says is unhelpful and not good. And uh, we're losing our voice on that a little bit as well. Kids are going to come back and uh, we're going to finish up. So I'm just going to pray and then they're going to share what they're doing. Worship team, I'm going to, we're going to have a short little gathering of what we're going to do now. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are bringing together in unity everything under heaven and earth. Thank you that you are creating a world which honours you where there is peace and truth and life, where your law, laws and your purposes are followed and it is good. You graciously call people. You are patient. In the midst of evil in a world that often fights against you, Jesus, you reign and you graciously are calling us to be at work and be your witnesses and love. May we faithfully endure. May we be full of joy and hope and grace and patience. May we love one another, our neighbours and even our enemies. May we love them deeply so that your kingdom might come in us, so that you would have your way, so that you would build your life. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would set things right. Amen.